For the past few weeks, we spent time exploring the seven final sayings of Jesus. And we've been saying those words carried extra weight because they were his final words. That there is extra weight and extra care and extra attention given when someone speaks their final words before passing on because they're their last words. And so we've been exploring that, and in this past Good Friday, we actually went through all of those seven sayings. And this past Friday, on Good Friday, we, we remember Jesus on the sixth day of the week, completing his work on the cross and then breathing his last. Then yesterday, on Saturday, we remember on the seventh day, Jesus rests in the tomb. And today, the eighth day of the week, we look upon something else. Now, numbers are really significant in the Bible. Whenever you see the number seven, it represents completion. But when you also see the number eight, it represents new creation. And so today, the eighth day is signifying new creation, that something new is being birthed as Jesus comes back from the dead. It's Resurrection Sunday, the eighth day of the week and the first day of new creation. And it's interesting because just like this past series we've been in, just like we place so much emphasis on someone's final moments, we also place a lot of emphasis on people's first moments, don't we? Right now, a bunch of my friends, it's baby fever, um, and not just because of COVID-19, but people are just cranking out babies, especially my close friends, and all these kids are so cute, they're growing up so quick, they're getting so big, but it's been so cool watching the parents gush over the first moments of their children, like the first noise they make, or the first time they crawl, or the first word that they speak. Don't we celebrate the first moments? We, we take note of the first moments when someone is born. And in the same way, just like we place so much emphasis on Jesus' last moments before dying, I think it's important to look at the first thing that he does in new creation, the first thing that he does when he comes back from the dead, because it's important. But as we look at the first thing that Jesus does after resurrecting from the grave, I don't know about you, but when I read the story, it's not what I would expect him to do. And so that's what we're going to look at today in the book of Luke. But before we do, let me pray for us, and then we'll get into the word. Now, Holy Spirit, we invite you here right now. God, I thank you that it is Resurrection Sunday, and you are making all things new. And 2,000 years ago, on this eighth day of the week, it was the first day of the new creation. And so today, as we look at the very first thing that you do when you come back from the dead, God, let us find significance in what it means for us as your followers 2,000 years later. We love you. We honor you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. We say amen. And so today we're going to look at Luke chapter 24, verse 13 through 21. I'm going to go ahead and read it for us, and then we'll get into this story. It says this, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. 
Now, biblical scholars believe that these two people were a husband and a wife. And at this point in the story, they're not even named. The author deemed it unnecessary to tell us who they were. But later in the passage, we actually find out that one of the people, one of the two, is named Cleopas. And so Cleopas and his wife, they're walking down this road to Emmaus, and Jesus encounters them. Now, the thing to note about these two, the one thing to really note about these two people was actually that there was nothing really notable about them. They were relatively unknown, seemingly insignificant people to the story that's being told here in Luke. And keep in mind, this is Jesus' first appearance since coming back from the dead. I don't know about you, but if I were coming back from the dead and I was deciding what's my first appearance going to be, I would show up to my wife or maybe one of my close friends or maybe show up on Jimmy Kimmel. You know, I'd show up somewhere that to someone that, that carries great significance to me. But in this first moment, Jesus could have shown up to any of the famous apostles. He could have shown up to Peter, who he said, you're the rock upon which this church is going to be built. He could have showed up to John, his beloved disciple. But no, Jesus chooses to show up to make his first appearance to two unknown, seemingly insignificant people. This is huge. See, I don't know about you, but there have been so many times in my life where I found myself asking God, God, why me? Why would you use me? Why would you go out of your way to come after someone like me? Why me when that person has it all together? Why 99 when there are churches of thousands of congregation members and endless resources to do whatever you want them to? Why me when that person has a perfect family, when my family's in shambles? Why me when that person is so anointed, so prophetic, so holy, and I could barely open up my word? Why did Jesus first appear to these two unknowns, these two seemingly insignificant people? And I believe he was trying to show us something about who he is, about his nature and his character. He was trying to tell us that I do not give priority to those who have higher credentials, to those who have more influence, to those who have it more together, to those who are holier. And he's saying, you are not insignificant. You are not second choice. You are not second in line. You are precious enough that I would cancel every other appearance to show up and come before you first. In elementary school, um, I was not very athletic. I did not play sports. Um, But one game that I loved playing was dodgeball. And even though I was a little more rotund than the average child, I was surprisingly nimble and um, very hard to hit. But none of my friends knew that. No one really knew that. And I remember whenever we'd play dodgeball, I found a very similar pattern in the way the game would start. You know, you, you line everyone up and they choose two team captains. I never got chosen. They would choose people one by one. And it could either be the most glorifying moment for you or the most embarrassing, agonizing moment for you. For me, it was often the most agonizing moment because I was often chosen last because of my appearance, um, even though I was surprisingly really good at dodgeball. But I remember one day, one of my closest friends was chosen as team captain. And 
you know, the other team chose first. Obviously, they chose the dude that was the most athletic. And then my friend, it was his first pick. And in a surprising move, not just to me, but to everyone, he chose me first. And I was like, this must be a mistake. Like, why did you choose me? I went up to him. I was like, bro, why did you choose me? You could have chosen Frank or you could have chosen Alex. Like, they got hops. Why did you choose me? Like, do you know that I'm really good or what, what is it? Why choose me? And he said something. It really moved me as a young child. He said, um, I, just re- I just wanted to make sure that we play together. And in the same way, I think... Sometimes we feel like we're lined up and Jesus is just choosing who he wants to use, who he wants to encounter, who he wants to give revelation to. And sometimes it feels like we're overlooked. Sometimes it looks like he'd rather choose this person or that person because of this or that. But I believe what Jesus is showing us by appearing to these two unknowns, his first appearance since coming back from the dead, he's telling us you are not insignificant and that you are priority to me. You are precious to me. And that you are not disqualified from me approaching you and walking with you as I have walked with these two. And so we continue the story. It says, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas finally gets a shout out, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? In other words, where have you been? Like, do you not know what's going on in in our world, in our city? Do you not know what's going on right now? What things he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. We had hoped. Have you ever hoped that God would move in a specific way and nothing around you changed? Have you ever hoped that God would restore your family, but they're just as dysfunctional as ever? Have you ever hoped that God would heal that sickness, but it still remained? I don't know about you, but when I read this, I understand what these two were experiencing because there have been so many times in my life where I had hoped only to end up disappointed and discouraged and empty of hope. Even today, we had hoped that today we could be celebrating Easter, but not just Easter. Today was supposed to be the day that we would celebrate as a church our birth and our emergence, the emergence of 99 into our city. Today we're going to gather all together and celebrate what God has been doing in our community. And and obviously we're going to set a later date to celebrate together that emergence and that birth. But today was supposed to be the day. And we can't. We had hoped that COVID-19 would start de-escalating and that we could start returning to normalcy, but we're continuing to be sheltered in place. We had hoped that 2020 would be a lot kinder to us than 2019. We had hoped, 
I think we all understand what these two were feeling. One of my good friends, Matt, and I'll probably tell this story till the day I die, but he was, he's a man of big faith, like stupid, ridiculous faith. He's the only one that I know that I could say has stupid, ridiculous faith. He just believes for the craziest things. And he was telling me, you know, many years back, he was at a conference out of state. And during the conference, the, uh, the preacher gave an altar call. And he said, if anyone wants to be healed of anything, specifically bad eyesight, I believe God wants to touch you. And so Matt, being full of faith, he's like, yes, God, I believe you're going to do it. And in an act of stupid, ridiculous faith, he takes both of his contacts out and he throws them onto the floor and he waits for his healing. And so he's sitting there and he tells me the story. He's, he's like, God is going to heal my eyesight. He opens his eyes and everything is still hella blurry. So he closes and he prays again. He opens it again and everything is still blurry and he realizes, shoot. I threw my only contacts that I brought on this trip away from home. I threw them on the floor thinking that God would heal me. I had hoped that he would heal my eyesight, but I'm still as blind as ever. You know, even for me, I I remember being at a conference and they were doing a very similar altar call. If there's any ailment or any sickness that you're experiencing and you want healing, I believe God wants to heal you. And so I stood up for that altar call and, I have a skin condition called psoriasis, and it especially flares up in the back of my head and my scalp um, during uh, seasonal changes and weather changes. And I remember that season, it was particularly bad. And I remember standing up thinking, this is it. This is the moment. God's going to heal me. You know, I pray for so many people that are feeling sick, and God heals them. And so this is my moment. This is my chance now. And so I remember standing there, and I had hoped that God would heal me. That this discomfort, this rash, this, this itchiness, it would go away. This, this burden on my scalp would go away. I remember thinking I had hoped, but I didn't get healed. And I remember questioning God why and walking away discouraged and disappointed. You see, I think all of us have experienced we had hoped. And things didn't pan out the way that we thought they would. See, I think life often doesn't go the way that we expect it to. And for these two, they had hoped. They had hoped that Jesus would redeem Israel. They had hoped that Jesus was really the Messiah that he claimed to be. They, would hope, they had hoped that Jesus would be the one to rescue them from Roman oppression. They had hoped so much. And now their hopes were gone, destroyed, trampled. And think about this. They're walking on this road to Emmaus. At some point, you got to ask, where's Emmaus? Like, what is Emmaus? Is, is Emmaus this amazing town? Like, are they going somewhere to pursue something new? Like, why are they going to Emmaus? And if you look, first of all, Emmaus was a small, unknown, relatively insignificant town. Okay, it's kind of like if you visit the Bay Area and you hear of a, a little town called Brisbane. Shout out to Brisbane, by the way. I love Brisbane. They have a little boba guys there. But it, 
Brisbane next to San Francisco is seemingly insignificant, unknown. I remember growing up in Daly City when people would visit from out of town. Like, where are you from? Where do you live? Daly City. Like, where's Daly City? No one knows about it. It's unknown. It's insignificant, irrelevant. In the same way, Emmaus, especially compared to Jerusalem, was a nowhere city. It was an unknown town. But second, we have to note, not only are they walking, towards this unknown city, this insignificant town, but they're walking away from Jerusalem. They're walking away from where the resurrection was supposed to take place. They're walking away from where the Messiah's glorious return, the sight of his coming again was supposed to happen. In other words, they're walking in the complete wrong direction, away from God, away from resurrection, full of hopelessness. Now, why is this significant? Because this is Jesus, Savior of the world, King of kings, Lord of lords, the Messiah, the resurrected one. And the first thing that he does after coming back from the dead is take a walk with two unknown, seemingly insignificant people who are headed in the wrong direction. See, in the limited time that Jesus had after coming back from the dead and being ascended into heaven, it was a period of about 40 days. In the limited time that he had, he deemed it a priority, his first appearance, to show up to two unknowns who were headed in the wrong direction to walk with them so that he could bring them back on track. I remember one of the toughest seasons in my life was in college. And at the time, I was really involved in children's ministry at our church. And every summer, we would throw this program called VBS, Vacation Bible School. Anyone know that? Anyone have experience with that? Anyone traumatized from that? Jesus, heal them. But I remember these moments would be so fun because we get to spend a whole week with kids. But I remember the production on it and everything we had to prepare was so much work. And one of my mentors at the time, my pastor, her name was Pastor Gina, Um, She was overseeing all of this incredibly busy, the busiest time of our ministry year, our ministry calendar. And I remember simultaneously during the start of VBS, I was experiencing one of the lowest points in my life. I remember feeling so depressed, so alone. And I remember thinking, I just need someone to talk to. But I was hesitant because I knew Pastor Gina was so, so busy with everything going on. And so I would go back and forth. I should reach out to her. She's my pastor. But she's so busy. It can't wait another week. Can't wait another month. Like maybe this is too insignificant for her to, to step away from everything that she's doing to focus on me. But I remember finally making the decision. I'm going to call her. And I'm just going to share with her what's going on. And so I remember calling Pastor Gina and Every few seconds, I would reiterate, listen, I know you're so busy, so if you don't have time, we could do this again next week. If you're so busy, it's okay. We could reschedule. But I'll never forget her response when I shared that I was hurting. She said, you know what, Mickey? I will always have time for this. This is more important than anything else. And I remember that really touching me because in that moment, I really needed someone. And Admits her busy schedule. She said, you're so important to me that I would forsake everything else just to be with you, to walk with you. 
Even if you're headed in the wrong direction, I want to walk with you to bring you back. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus walks with us, even when we're headed in the wrong direction. I think sometimes we have mistaken theology to tell us that Jesus only walks with us when we're headed in the right direction, when we're doing everything we're supposed to be doing, when we're headed towards our destiny, when we're spending adequate time with him and, and worshiping him and praying and reading the word. And I think we have this mistaken theology that Jesus only walks with the people that are headed in the right direction. But this story tells us that even when we're walking the complete opposite direction away from God, away from resurrection, even when we're walking towards hopelessness, away from resurrection, even when we're walking toward despair, away from faith, he still walks with us. You see, religion says, I have to reach for God, but grace says, God has reached for me. And even when I was walking astray, he walked with me and walked me back. One of my mentors, I love this. He says, God is a zigzag God. We often think he, he works in straight lines, that the way our lives of faith look is like this. God takes us on the straight path. But he says, our lives of faith actually look a lot more like this. It's a zigzag. We're supposed to go straight. And if everything went well and we were perfect, we would. But we oftentimes take detours and we make a sharp left when we're supposed to go straight. We make a sharp right. We make a wrong decision. We make a bad decision. We fall into depression. We fall into discouragement. And the reason why it's a zigzag is because God always comes with us when we go off course and he brings us back. He's a zigzag God. He is the God of the detour. It reminds me when we take our dog Fig to Fort Funston here in San Francisco, we let him off leash and we walk down the path. But we find that as we're walking down the path, Fig never walks on the path with us. He always goes from the right side to the left side, sniffing everything, peeing on everything, exploring everything. And as we're walking, he keeps going there and there. And we have to keep calling him back, Fig, bye Fig, we're leaving. And then he runs back to us and he's with us for five seconds. And then he goes off again to pee somewhere else. And that's kind of like us. That God is trying to walk us on this path, but we often go off course. But Jesus is the type of Savior who follows us off course, walks with us, even when we're headed in the wrong direction, and walks us back. See, how many of you know your life doesn't change when you decide to reach for God? Your life changes when you realize that God has already been reaching for you. And today, I believe that God wants you to know that he is reaching for you. Even though you might be too tired to reach back, he's reaching for you. Even though you might be so done believing and fighting and hoping, especially in this time, he's reaching for you. Listen, some of you are walking toward Emmaus today. You're walking away from resurrection. You're walking away from faith. You're walking away from hope. You're walking away from everything that God has for you. And you're full of doubt. You're full of anxiety. You're full of worry. And some of you, maybe you're too tired to believe again, to hope again. And can I tell you something? Jesus is right there with you. He is walking with you. 
He's walking with you in your worries for your family members. He's walking with you in your unemployment. He's walking with you in your concerns for your finances. He's walking with you in your loneliness. And he's walking with you in his plan isn't to leave you where you're at, but it's to bring you back to resurrection, to bring you back to life, to bring you back to faith and to hope again. Just like he did for these two. He knows that maybe you're too tired to reach right now and he's saying it's okay because I have been reaching for you ever since the cross, ever since the moment you were born, ever since when you can remember I have been reaching for you. And maybe this Easter doesn't feel like Easter for you. Maybe right now the resurrection is a hard thing for you to grasp in your life, just like it was for these two. But regardless, Jesus is walking with you. He's reaching for you. See, Easter is not about reaching for God. It's about celebrating a God who reaches for you. And so they were so hopeless And scripture says that they didn't even recognize that Jesus was right there in front of them, walking with them, talking to them. I mean, he's right there for crying out loud. They don't recognize as Jesus. But isn't that so true? That when we're so utterly hopeless, that God could be moving mountains before our very eyes, but we wouldn't be able to recognize it. We can't see it. And that's what hopelessness does. It blinds us from everything else that God is doing. And and they were hopeless But Jesus doesn't leave them hopeless. He restores their hope again, and this is how he does it. We we continue on in Luke chapter 24. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Gives them the best Bible study in the world. Continues on. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Listen, if you were a child growing up in a Jewish household, you knew the scriptures in and out. You knew the stories of God. You read them continuously. They were told to you again and again. And these two that had known the scriptures, that had known God, Jesus in this moment takes them through the scriptures that they had known their whole lives, the stories that they had heard their whole lives. And he shows them, look, you've been thinking that it was about this, but actually every story that you heard growing up, all these scriptures that you read are actually pointing to me. And all the stories you read growing up, they were actually all about me. That's why I love Seder. We celebrated Seder as a community this past Thursday. Because Seder, if you think about it, is this tradition that Jews would observe in their household year after year for hundreds of years, even before Jesus came. And every part of the ritual, every part of the ceremony of Passover that they were doing in their household was actually speaking of Jesus, the coming Messiah. And so these Jews had been practicing these stories, telling these things and doing these things for hundreds of years. And all of it was pointing to Jesus, but they had no idea. And he's saying, listen, all these scriptures you read, all the stories you read, they were actually all about me. And I believe what he's saying to us, he's saying, listen, I've been there all along. 
through every struggle, through every heartbreak, through every trial, I have been there. And it's actually all been leading back to me. And if I've been there from the beginning, you can trust that I'll be there to the end. You see, Jesus combs through the pages of our lives and shows us how he was there all along, working even when we couldn't see him. In fact, he shows us that the very areas that looked like he was gone and absent from, the very areas that looked like death and hopelessness, the very areas that looked like darkness were the very areas where he was and the very areas where he was working. And he's saying, look back and see how I've been there all along. And you can hope again because as I've been faithful, you can trust that I'll continue to be. You see, when you see him in your history, you can trust that he's there in your present and working in your future. That's why when we look back to Easter, when we look back to resurrection, we believe that the same Jesus who rose from the dead back then is still alive today and he's still in the business of resurrection. He's saying, look, I know you're looking all around and all you see is death and defeat All you see is COVID-19. All you see is anxiety and worry and fear. All you see is bad news after bad news. But if you look closer, I'm right there. I'm right there in the suffering. I'm right there in the hopelessness. I'm right there in the disappointment. Listen, if I could preach anything to you today, even if you can't see it, He's there and he's working and he's walking with you. See, on the road to Emmaus, all you can see is defeat. All you can see is death and sorrow. But Jesus is walking alongside you and he's longing to show you that not everything is as it seems. There's more that meets the eye. And listen, one day you'll look back on right now and say, man, God was working. I couldn't see it at the moment, but now I see God is working. And so when we look at our history and we see that God has been faithful, it stirs up hope again, just like these two. We're not our hearts burning within us. You want to know how to get your heart burning? You remember how God has been faithful starting from the very beginning when he rose from the dead, when everyone thought that he was dead, when everyone was hopeless and he came back to life, to every moment in your life where he has proven himself self-alive and faithful. You remember those moments and your heart starts to burn again as you look upon the darkest moments of your life and you see that he was walking right there with you. And then you realize as I'm walking in my dark moment right now, that just like he was with me then, he's with me. Now that's how you hope again. In college, I shared that it was one of the darkest times of my life. I was in a severe season of depression. I felt so alone, so lost, so worthless, so far from God. And I remember one day, it was in my room. I had binged Grey's Anatomies the entire day. That was just what my days were look like. I was just vegging and I was so depressed, so alone. And I remember kneeling down on my floor in the middle of the day with the curtains still closed, still in my PJs. And I remember saying, God, If you're real, I need you to show up right now because I cannot go another day the way that I've been going for these past few months. If you're real, you need to show me something. 
And I remember kneeling there in my room alone. And I remember feeling arms wrap around me. And I, I remember getting startled. I looked back and no one was there. And I was like, what the hell's going? Oh, this is God. So I remember getting back into kneeling position, feeling the embrace of God. And probably for the only, the first time and the only time I've heard the audible voice of God, I heard very clearly, Mickey, you are my beloved son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. And I remember for the first time in my life encountering the love and the embrace of the Father. See, if you would have asked me in that season what God was doing, I would have said God's nowhere to be found. That this is just one of those dark, sucky seasons where I'm walking alone depressed. But when I look back, I see that that entire season, that God was walking with me, that Jesus was walking with me, and he had a purpose, and he was working, even though I couldn't see it. And I thank God for that season, because it was the most important season of my life. Listen, some of you are on that road to Emmaus right now. Some of you are in that darkness right now, and it doesn't seem hopeful. It feels like God is distant, and he's far away. But I want to assure you, if Easter tells us anything, is that Jesus is walking on that road to Emmaus with you and he understands your doubts he understands your fears he understands your pain and your anxieties but he's walking with you and he wants to give you hope again he wants you to burn again and he wants to show you that this season I'm doing something even though you might not be able to see it I am bringing resurrection life to you Frederick Buechner says resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. That's powerful because right now it feels like the worst thing. All around us, the world, it feels like the worst thing. But the thing that I have hope in is that the resurrection story didn't end in the grave. It didn't end in the tomb. It didn't end with crucifixion and the cross. It ended with the glorious resurrection, a tombstone rolled over, angels celebrating, and Jesus appearing and breaking bread with us. Listen, church, some of you may be on your road to Emmaus. You may feel defeated, hopeless, But today I want you to know Jesus is walking with you. He is reaching for you. And he's come to bring you back to resurrection. He's alive. And he wants to give you hope again. And so church, that's my encouragement to you. Whether you feel far from God or you understand that he's there, he's giving you hope again. And we need hope in a time like this. And I thank God that we have someone who we can hope in, who has overcome death, who has overcome the grave, and who is still alive today. Let's pray. Today I want to read a prayer from one of my favorite theologians, Walter Brueggemann. And he wrote this beautiful prayer called Easter Us. And I want to pray this over us today before we close. You, God, who terrified the waters, who crashed your thunder, who shook the earth and scared the wits out of chaos. You, God, who with strong arms saved your people by miracle and wonder and majestic act. You are the same God to whom we turn. 
We turn in our days of trouble and in our weary nights. We look for steadfast love and are dismayed. We wait for your promises, but wait in fatigue. We ponder your forgetfulness and lack of compassion, and we grow silent. Our lives addressed to you have this bittersweet taste of loud clashing miracles and weak need doubt. So we come in our bewilderment and wonderment, deeply trusting almost afraid to trust much, passionately insisting, too timid to insist much, fervently hoping, but exhausted for hoping too much. Look upon us in our deep need. Mark the wounds of our brothers and sisters just here. Notice the turmoil in our lives and the lives of our families. Credit the incongruity of the rich and the poor in our very city and the staggering injustices abroad in our land. Tend to the rage out of control, rage justified by displacement, rage gone crazy by absence, silence, and deprivation. Measure the suffering, count the sufferers, number the wounds you tamer of chaos and mender of all tears in the canvas of creation we ponder your suffering your crown of thorns your garment taken in lottery your mocked life and now we throw upon your suffering humiliation the suffering of the world you defeater of death whose power could not hold you. Come in your Easter. Come in your sweeping victory. Come in your glorious new life. Easter us. Salve wounds. Break injustice. Bring peace. Guarantee neighbor. Easter us in joy and strength. Be our God. Be your true self, Lord of life. Massively turn our life toward your life. And away from our anti-neighbor, anti-self-deathliness. Here are thankful, grateful, unashamed. Hallelujah. Amen. God, we pray tonight, today, that you would move upon your people. For some of us, we feel hopeless. For some of us, it doesn't feel like Easter. For some of us, resurrection is too hard to grasp. It's too hard to believe. It's too hard to hope. But for those who are on the road to Emmaus, I thank you that you are walking alongside them and you are reaching for them at this very moment. And so today, more than anything, would we see that you are walking alongside us and you are bringing us back to hope, bringing us back to resurrection and that even though we're too tired to reach for you, that you are reaching for us. And so today, would you walk with us? Would you reach for us? And would you make our hearts burn again as you show us throughout the history of your people, throughout our own history, that you have been there all along, that all of it has been pointing toward this one moment. He is risen and you are alive in us today. And God, right now, I want to take a moment for those who have been far from you, who are feeling nudged, who are feeling convicted, who are feeling moved to come back. God, would you gently guide them by the hand, 
back into your grace, back into your mercy, back into relationship and intimacy with you. We love you and we thank you for your resurrection. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.